Okay, uh, what I wanted to talk about today, if you have these in front of you, uh, is some things that are listed uh, in the Heart Sutra. Um, the first line of it, and we chant this every day for those who've not been here before, uh, it says, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deep prajnaparamita, saw that all five skandhas are empty and became free from all suffering and distress. <coughs> That's a pretty heavy statement. Uh, so what I wanted to look at today is, what are the skandhas? It's a core basic teaching in Buddhism, and uh, we don't really talk about it much, so uh, Hopefully all of you are intimately familiar with it. If not, we'll go and do some basics. Uh, the five skandhas are also known as the five aggregates. And what about this I want to, I'd like to discuss is, is what are these skandhas? And what is it this emptiness is that when we become free of them, ends all suffering and distress? Why it's, it, it starts that way, it's, it's, it's rather a profound thing to think about. Uh, Buddha in the teachings points to different things. It's not what he's pointing that's going to make a change in your life. He's just pointing out different realizations that are available to us. And he gives us ways to access these real, realizations. When we realize these things for ourselves, it makes a, an incredibly profound difference in the way that we live our lives. And that's what's important about it. So some of what I might talk about uh, might be a little complex, hopefully not. Uh, I have a little diagram and some pictures. Uh, but you, know, you may forget everything that I said. So let me start by telling a joke. So at least you maybe you remember the joke. And if you forget everything else, at least we got something out of the talk. So two whales are sitting at a bar out in the Hamptons. One is wearing a bright blue blazer, the other one a beautiful scarf with orange and yellow stripes. Uh, they can smell the seawater, the beach, they can hear the sound of the waves, and they can smell a faint trace of honeysuckle wafting on the summer breeze. One of them picks up his drink, gulps it down, and he says, <laughs> the other one turns him to him and says, okay, that's enough for you. Give me your keys. There's no way you're driving home. <laughs> okay, so. Thank you very much. So there's a reason that I wanted to tell you that. In listening to that, you created in your mind a whole picture. And that picture had smells and color and texture. And it's a totally absurd situation. It could never possibly happen. But there it is. It arose in your mind somehow. It's an incredible ability that humans have. We don't know if any other creature has it, but humans certainly do. You've all experienced it. So 
there's a lot in the creation of what you just did in your mind with how you perceive reality. And that's why I wanted to, to tell that little story, okay? So we can ask ourselves, we created all these things, but we can ask ourselves, what is it that's real? Obviously, that scenario that we have, that we just created, we can't say that it was real. But it's not such a simple question if we, th if we think about it. Uh, because we so often misperceive what it is that's out there with what goes on in here that we create huge amounts of stress for ourselves. It's like constantly trying to take a round peg and bang it into a square hole. And that's the way that most of us live our lives. And we wonder where this background stress comes from, this, this dissatisfaction, this, this inability to really find the ground of being. And this is one of the things that the Buddha pointed out that it arises from. Now just take a look at some of the things that we just did in our mind with that story. One, we created the idea of a color. We recalled the color, blue and yellow and, and orange stripes. But that's something that does not exist anywhere out there. There's no such thing in the world as color. It simply doesn't exist. This is scientific fact. What there are is an electromagnetic spectrum, and we have sensors in our eyes called cones that just trigger, send a little electric pulse when they're stimulated by a particular wavelength. No color here, all right? It could be any wavelength. It could be radio waves, but it happens to be a particular wave in the, electro, in the, in the visual spectrum. Uh, one cone is sensitive to red, another one to blue, and another one to yellow. And that's it. There's no other electrical symbols. Anything else other than those three is a creation or a construction of the mind. But even that red, yellow, and blue is a construction of the mind. It's just a signal that we go to our mind and we create a thing about it. There's no way you could ever know that the yellow or the red that you see is the same as anybody else's. They may be seeing what you experience as green. And it wouldn't make any difference because we're just using this as cues to model a world, create a model of the world and to, to, to be able to survive in it. So these are all things that are constructs or constructions of the mind and nothing more. It's an interesting thing. Um, people, there's certain people that, that this is documented that, that have a stroke. And the blood clot, if it lodges in a particular part of the brain, the part of the brain, which is a submodule in the brain that interprets color or creates this idea of color, they no longer can see any color. It's pretty simple, right? It's not too far out. But what's amazing is when they're asked a question about color or they're told a story like this, they cannot generate a concept of color in their imagination. They imagine everything in black and white. And when people the doctors try to ask them about color, they have no recollection of it. It's not like there was ever an experience that they, they, they can ever recall having in their life. And so when someone explains color, it's like trying to explain chocolate to somebody that never tasted it. It's just no longer there. And people also that have strokes where it lodges in a particular part of the brain that generates all of the visual information in the visual cortex and wipes that out so they're totally blind, there's a certain percentage of them that don't, don't, are not upset about not seeing 
because they have no conception of what it would be like to ever see. It just, it's just not, not a conscious thing for them. So if we're creating so much in here, what is it that's really out there? What can we know about it? Uh, Kim actually brought this up and got me thinking about this uh, a couple weeks ago. We were having tea and we were talking about what's reality. So what is reality? What is it that's out there that we can actually know? And if we think about it, all we can ever really know about the outside world is just the stimulations at our nerve endings that send electrical chemical impulses into the brain. And that's it. That's what the matrix was about. That's what the, in the scientists we talk about a, a brain in a jar. How would the brain know if the impulses were from just electronic instruments or things that were done or if it was in a real world? And the matrix was about that. And, and some people believe you never, that there's a possibility you wouldn't know. But what is it from a physical point of view that we can know is that about the outside is that something is out there, it stimulates a sensory nerve, and everything that comes into consciousness all right, from that stimulation we know has been extensive from scientific studies of the brain have been extensively processed uh, in our unconscious before it ever even presents itself to consciousness. So this is all stuff that we're creating. When you see, um, have time, I could show you a bunch of different experiments that you can do where you can see all kinds of tricks that your eyes play on you. Uh, what we see is not really out there, and optical illusions are, are a great example of this. But what we can do from what's coming in is make inferences about what is out there. What it is we'll never know, but we can certainly make some pretty accurate inferences about it. And everybody in the world thinks they all have a pretty good idea of what's out there. But in truth, everybody's idea about what's out there is a little bit different. And some of these models and concepts work pretty well. And some of them, we know people, they don't work well at all. That's so why I say, well, what about science? Science has gone so far, we know so much. Well, if you think about it, all we do in science is we develop incredible instrumentation or instruments like telescopes and electron microscopes and um, uh, gravity wave detectors and all these instruments as brilliant and as incredible and accurate as they are are just extensions of our physical senses. We just amplify light so we could see it in our eyes a little better or magnify things so we can see them or feel them or hear a gravity wave or, or whatever it else it is and that's how still we always have to end up knowing our mind through our senses. But we also have no reason to believe that our senses encompass everything that's out there. We can't feel magnetism. Bats and dolphins can see the world through echolocation. And it's not that they hear a beep like in the old World War II submarine movies, beep, beep, beep. They actually create a world around that. And there are people that are blind and they can make clicking noises and actually don't just hear the echo, but they create, as they describe it, a visual field. That's a fence, that's a pole, that's a car. And they, have, they can drive bicycles down the street just by making clicking sounds. Uh, other animals exist in another type of, of reality that we can't even fathom, like certain freshwater eels live in a world of electrical uh, fields. 
like an electric eel. It senses the electrical fields around it and it's able to navigate its world and feed itself and survive that way. And then there's a whole world of things that we don't experience that are beyond our physical senses. And um, I think that scientists now predict that like 80% of what makes up our universe is made up of something called dark matter and dark energy. And yet we have no sensory perception of it whatsoever. So where this gets tied into Buddhism is that Buddha asked a question, and people have been asking a question for thousands, well, since humanity started, I guess. And big questions like, who am I? What am I? What's the purpose to my life? Is there a meaning here that if I'm missing it, that I'll never be fulfilled? Uh, if I experience fear, dissatisfaction, stress, worry, can I change how I react to that? Or is it fixed? Is it just my fate? Well, Buddha investigated these questions some 25,000 years ago. And at that time, there were no super scientific instruments, there were no MRIs, but he used the instrument that he had available to him at that time, which was incredibly developed, which was his own mind, which he had developed through meditation and practice to a device or an instrument that of extreme power, far beyond what an ordinary mind might be considered. And what he did is he took this mind and he turned it inward to observe his own mind. Because, now this is the logic here, is that if everything that we experience is created in our own mind, or the only way we can access it is from what's in our consciousness, and everything that we could know about the world, that is what we're conscious of, holds true, if you want to realize the nature of reality, which is your conscious experience, your only window on that reality has to be your own mind. So it makes really, it's a worthwhile thing to study it and say, what is this mind? How does it work? So in modern era here in the West, I believe that uh, we only have come up with a, a concept of the subconscious about 100 years ago, 150, Something like that. Before that, nobody had any thought of it. No, it just never occurred to anybody. But now we know that there is a subconscious and a conscious. Uh, and Buddhism describes this as the alaya conscious, alaya conscious, which they talked about some 2,000 years ago. So they kind of had figured something else was up. And so we can break consciousness, or we break the mind out rather down into two different parts: that which is unconscious that is which can never be experientially known, what we can't experience, and all the information that is potentially available to us to be known, I say potential because we don't always are cognizant of everything in it, but everything that's potentially available we call consciousness, or a field of consciousness. Now, Buddha's observation on this was that for there to be consciousness, and this is a really revolutionary thought, that there has to be something to be conscious of. You can't have consciousness without an object. And he further said, there are only two basic objects that you can be conscious of. Physical objects and mental objects. 
Now we just had the experience with mental objects, which are just simply thoughts, visions, projections, reminiscences, uh, emotions, anything that we think. And that's a mental object. A physical object is anything that comes in through our sensations. So it can either be the conscious of physical sensations or mental objects, mental or physical objects. Now in Buddhism, let me get out my little chart here. This is where we get into the aggregates. And in Buddhism, we call these things that we can be conscious of aggregates. The body is considered the source of the sense organs, and that's called form. Getting back, if, you, if you're looking at the Heart Sutra in front of you there, it's just describing some of the terms that are used in there. So form returns, refers to anything physical and all the physical senses. The Pali word for it is rupa, which translates to form. The mind is a source of mental objects, and it's called nama, or nama and rupa, which is, means name, or name is what they, you would name something, which means you would think of it. Right? To think of something, you kind of name it. It kind of makes sense. Together, in Buddhism, these are known as the six sense bases. And this is the stuff that goes on and on and on in the Heart Sutra there. Now, all of the sense objects fall neatly into five different categories. So everything that we can know physically is five different categories. If we have the, uh, this, it's, it goes on, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, sight, smell, touch. That's what we're talking about here. And why it's so important and why the Heart Sutra goes into such lengthy thing about it is because, as you'll see, it's critical to how we interact with the world in ways that we don't normally understand. The uh, sense objects go into five categories. Now, the other object, the mental object, Buddha classified in the Abhidharma into 51 separate categories. And it's not important what they are, but they're virtuous objects and non-virtuous objects and neutral. And it goes on and on and on in great detail. But they're basically thoughts and things that we think. Now, of all these thoughts and things that we think, he's decided or he isolated two of them as being so incredibly important that he wanted to take them out of that 51 and list them separately. Because they have such an incredible influence on how we live our lives. And those were sensations, which I'm going to describe. I'm going to use the word feeling because I think it's easier to understand, and perceptions. So all the 51 are here, and he put these two out here, perceptions and sensations. And again, that's in the Heart Sutra. Those are the five aggregates, and you, it's, it goes on. If you look at the next line down, it describes them that the, as all being empty and lists them just as they're listed here. So, why are these two so important? Because, let's start with perceptions. Perceptions make up just about everything that we know. It's how we interact with the world. Now, a perception is not the raw sensory input that's electronically transmitted through the tips of the nerves from the sense organs to the brain. That's a sense precept. 
It's different. That's just raw sensory data. We don't access that in consciousness. We access that subconsciously. You never know what that is. Okay? We can have glimpses of things similar to it, but this is the raw and processed information uh, which the brain sees as edges and it sees as, as, as wavelength and it sees as shades and it sees as movement and the different parts of the brain that process these things and then they put them together and then they bind them together in the visual cortex and then they project it to another area which measures it against something else and then it's compared with the raw data that's, that's combined and bound with things that we have in memory from past experiences and things that we've, 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 we have uh, been conditioned about, and it creates a thing, flapping thing through the air is a blackbird, all right? And that projects into our conscious, we go, oh, there's a blackbird, or there's a soft fuzzy ball, or that's a teddy bear, or whatever it is. These things don't exist out there like that. We create these, we construct them, in our minds. And that's a very important thing. These are all mental constructions over here called perceptions. So let's uh, take a, a, a look at this. Well, we'll get to that in a second. All right. So we don't see things, but we see our, our projection of these things. Now, it's not also important to know about things, but also how we experience each other. Another person is the most complex thing that you'll ever perceive in your life. And it's obvious none of us perceives another person in the same exact way. And sometimes we could perceive someone as being very dangerous, untrustworthy, and someone else, oh no, he's, he's a wonderful father, he's a great mentor, and same person, two completely different perceptions. But we concretize these things, and we create all kinds of problems for ourselves. And countries do this, and political organizations do this, and that's how we end up with Trumps and Al-Qaeda and all kinds of crazy stuff. And not only do people perceive other people in, this, in different ways, we even perceive other people differently, sometimes day to day, or month to month, or even moment to moment. So we don't even have the same perception of someone. Inanimate objects may be a little simpler, but we can't assume that everybody perceives inanimate objects even in the same way. It's just not so. We just assume it. For instance, my, my, uh, my daughter, who, who loves food, loves to go out to eat, and we raised her to be really exotic food, she hates tomatoes. I love tomatoes, and I can't believe that someone with such good taste hates tomatoes. So whenever it's a summertime and there's a farm stand, I say, oh, this is a, a, a heirloom you know, tomato. This is a Jersey girl. These are so sweet. Let me cut it up for you. And I'll put a little salt to bathe. You got to taste it. And she spits it out. She's just disgusted by it. So to me, something that's delicious, I can't imagine how she finds it so, so awful. And if she, she gets a burrito or something, and she'll pick the little tomatoes out of it, she just, she just won't eat them. Um, you could see it the same way. Some people like broccoli, some people don't. Uh, some people like a particular kind of music, some people don't. Some people like painting, a movie. You know, it's all a projection of our own mind. That's why everything is different, all right? But we seem to generalize it and think that it's the same. And because we take these models that we make to be real, we make a mistake in perceiving reality. Because the models, being a model, it doesn't change. It's a mental projection. It stays the same. 
It is what we think it is. Aristotle came up with this. But reality, things are constantly changing. Nothing is ever the same from, more than, from moment to moment. This is where we start to, to realize what, we, what I call perceptual dissonance. This cognitive dissonance, I call this perceptual dissonance. And I believe that Buddha talks about this as one of the qualities of dukkha. Luparana dukkha, actually. So, the more complex the thing is, the more we're creating a perception of it. And the more obvious it becomes to us when we look at it, that the nature of the perception depends not so much, and I'm going to repeat this a ton of times, on the nature of the thing, but on the nature of our mind at the moment that we're perceiving it, we're creating the perception in relation to our past experience and prior conditioning. This is how the world is generated. Another example, you might love rock music, but if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you've got to get up the next morning in your apartment upstairs, they're playing at a party, and you want to go to sleep, that mock music doesn't sound good. It's, everything is, is, is perceived in relationship. Not out there, but from in here. The other thing that he signaled out was feelings. We call them sensations. Now, when I'm talking about feelings, I'm not talking about, oh, my feelings or emotions or anything like that. I'm talking about Vedana in Buddhism, which is feelings of three types. Pleasant, it's just a tone. So everything we experience has an associated tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We believe that these are qualities of that object out there, that that uh, avocado has that quality to it, or the, the, the peach, all right? It's a, it's a sour peach, or it's a ripe, perfect peach. Well, it's not. It's, again, it's a creation or a mental construct of in here. But Buddha said everything is, is accompanied by one of these mental tones. We call it, in the Heart Sutra, the translation that we have, um, sensation. All right? But again, it's not that kind of a sensation. It's that one of those tones, one of those three tones. And again, that's not, again, another example of thing, how it changes something that we have considered a pleasant tone, like we like chunky monkey ice cream, so we're eating it. But that's very pleasant for most of us. But you get to the second court, and you're still eating it, all of a sudden it gets to a point where it's really not pleasant. It becomes very unpleasant. It's not the ice cream that has the feeling in it. It's what we, the way that we perceive it. Uh, even physical sensations can be like this. Something like a caress or a hug is normally considered to be a pleasant sensation. But if it's given to us by somebody that's abused us, or we hate, or we can't stand, it, we recoil from the touch. So it's not, again, the sensation, it's how it's perceived in the mind. So we can say, because everything that we know is, in, is what's in consciousness, that what we call reality, that's anything any phenomenon or object that we're conscious of is actually empty itself of any inherent or fixed qualities of its own. And it depends on the nature of our own mind in the moment in relation to past experience and prior conditioning. If you look at the, the line in the Heart Sutra, and I hope you have it, you're looking at it as I'm talking about it, all right, it's what we're saying is simply that these five skandhas are empty of any nature of themselves. That's what they're empty of. And that we project this out into reality. The other thing that Buddha points out that's so important 
he sees, says, and this gets to exactly what it's saying in there, that if we could see that we're creating reality out there, that one of the things that we make a big mistake in is that who we are, this idea of a self, okay, is also, just like anything else, a projection of our mind. See what I'm saying? That this self that we think we are, this creation of the mind, a mental construct, which is constructed out of these things, I feel, I hear, I touch, I think, I am aware. I mean, this is who we are when we break it down to it. There's nothing outside of that that we can be. Buddha was very clever in that. So these five skandhas make up a person. What we think, again, we create a model of who we are, and we concretize it, and we make it a fixed model. So it doesn't change. The model stays the same, but the reality of it is something completely different. And that dissonance between the two, again, is a major, major source of stress. And in, in Buddhism, we talk about it as being the source of stress. So you know, let's do, I do a, a little thought experiment. Okay, we'll, we'll do a little thought exper experiment. Imagine if I could have a special power and I could say to everybody, if you want, today, I can switch your body for any body you choose. You could go to a catalog, you could look in a magazine, you just pick the body you want and we'll switch it. Or if you don't want to go that far, I can even switch you back to your body that you had 10 years or 20 years ago, whatever time in your life that you really felt you liked it. Or we can even not even have to do that. We can just touch it up a little bit. Maybe we can work on the hair, maybe you could uh, give you some six-pack abs and buff you up a little bit. Your choice. Would you do it? Just about everybody would say, well, either I'm going to take a little or just, you know, give me, uh, I don't know, some famous movie star. Let me look like, uh, I can't think of anybody right now. So let me have that, or whatever. And the other part of it would be, you'd still be, this, you'd be exactly who you are. Everybody, you know, you'd be yourself, you'd have every, all your memories, you wouldn't feel any different, you just have a little better body. So most people would say, yes, I'll, I'll do that, okay? I would anyway, I would think. I don't have to go on a diet this week. <laughs> so, if I then said to you, wait, there's a catch. You'll have that body, but you're going to be that person. You're no longer going to be you. You're not going to remember you. You're not going to... There we go. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. No, I, I think I'll skip that one. So the question I, bring, I do the experiment is, what is it that's that you that would go into this new body? Let me think about it. What is it that makes you that you want to keep in that new body as opposed to something else? And Buddha thought about that too. And what he said was that what a person is, okay, is the sum of all their past lifetime actions and choices that ended up resulting in a series of unique conscious experiences that shaped the way that that person or you will respond to new experiences. That's your persona, that's who you are. That's your, you know, that what makes you, you, you. And you feel unique, because your experiences are unique, and they're unique to you. And even if you had a new body, if you acted exactly as you were, who you always were, people that loved you and knew you would probably recognize you pretty quickly. So, what this stuff is, is the conscious experience of these 
five aggregates there. Now, what we call the self, again, is that identification with them. And we realize that all of them are changing. And then there's one that kind of stands out. And people sometimes go, well, what I really am is that I'm the one that's conscious. I'm the one that knows. So you could take all the rest of it away, but that's who my true nature is. And Buddha said, uh-uh-uh. You're not even, that self is not even made of consciousness. Because consciousness is dependent on an object, and if the object is always changing, consciousness is always changing. There's nothing inherent or fixed or solid about that either. Now, another way of looking at this, and this is Buddhist logic, that because all the parts are constantly changing, that which is the, the totality of the parts must also be changing. You can't have changing parts and, then, and a fixed center. It's like you have all the parts of a toy are made out of metal. The toy can't be wood or plastic. It's, if everything's metal, it's, it's metal. If all the parts are empty and don't have a fixed nature, then what a person is must also be empty and not have a fixed nature. So this is what Avalokiteshvara was speaking about. And he said that realizing this leads to the end of all suffering and misfortune. So this is like, how does that happen? And that's what, why I wanted to talk about this, and why it's listed in the Heart Sutra, and why it's such an important thing. The realization is that if you truly realize this, that there isn't any self, you're not saying that you don't exist and you're on a body and you don't think and all that stuff, but what I'm talking about, if this created mental image, which is what it is, and that's how it exists, it's a created mental image, which does exist, just like the whale story exists in a certain way, okay? That exists, but what doesn't exist is this fixed idea of who we are. And this is the ego, that, the kind of thing that Buddha talks, not the Freudian ego, but a different kind of ego, or a different kind of self. If we realize that there is no self, there is no problems for the self. If there's no self, there's no self to suffer. If there's no self that's ever born, there's no self that can ever die. This is where we get into the unborn, undying. The realization, the total realization of this experience, of this unborn, undying, is we can use the word nirvana to describe it. So the point of all of this is we can never really know what's out there but we can make certain inferences. What we need to look at is that many of these inferences could be very wrong. And this is the end of this. Some of the things that we get wrong, I'm just going to go over a few that you could think about, is that we take the threat of survival to this mentally constructed sense of self, and we mistake that with a threat to our continued physical existence. They're two different things. And the problem is we react to this, this uh, an attack on this identity. I'm the CEO, I'm a great guy, I'm a whatever, okay? We react to an attack on that with the same fight and flight response that if the threat was made by a, 
to our physical body with somebody with a gun. And we don't get guns in our face, probably never, but this threat to this created self occurs constantly throughout the day. This leads to incredible amounts of unnecessary worry and stress. And it would be exhausting enough if it was just one identity that we were protecting all the time. But it's not. It's hundreds of identities throughout the day. And past identities that no longer exist. And even imagine future identities that we haven't even gotten to yet. And we're protecting and we're fighting and we're trying to hold on to these and make them happen. And the stress is unbearable. And this is what the dukkha is. Right? This is the suffering that's being talked about. Not that if we cut our finger or we're going to get sick and die, that happens. And there is suffering inherent in that in life. But this is the different kind of suffering that we create and we put on top of all of that that we can do something about. So, what happens when we integrate these concepts into our life? We start to see, to, we start to realize that what, we're, what we start to perceive in our minds in accord with what reality is. Okay? We don't now, in Buddhist, the term is ignorance. We're ignorant of that. Okay? We start to perceive it. And we start to eliminate that stress of striving to perceive something that isn't real, that's just created in the mind. The other thing is impermanence. When we can start to relax with the truth and start to see it, that everything is constantly changing, we don't become so frustrated when pleasant experiences end and we start to long for more. We don't enact, react to the inevitable unpleasant experience with the same anger and aversion that we used to. We come to understand that a sense of well-being is found in the way we see things, not in the things we see. We realize that nothing exists by itself. The world we experience depends on us and our ability to name and form theories about it. Everything is interdependent, and we are an integral part of that interbeing. And when we feel dissatisfaction or our expectations are not fulfilled or that life occasionally seems meaningless, we realize that the problem is not life, but not simply not seeing life as it really is. That the stress and emotional suffering we experience is not a result of what's out there, but a result of our own misperceptions. We realize that external circumstances are quite often, if not always, beyond our own control. But we do have control over how we can view those circumstances, and that alone can make an incredible difference in the quality of our lives. And finally, start to develop a faith and an ability to cultivate a clear understanding of the nature of our own mind, our own true self, which leads us to a place where we who can see the world as the great Dogen Zenjai described it, a magnificent field of benefaction, perfect and complete, just as it is. And we all awaken to a world that we just can't help falling in love with over and over and over again, moment by moment by precious moment. Thank you.